From the University of Cambridge, this is Election, the politics podcast. My name is David Runciman, and this week we're going to be talking about two elections. In a moment, we'll be discussing the forthcoming Ugandan presidential election and what it might mean for democracy in Africa, including some views from a women's writer's circle in Kampala. Then it's back to the United States to talk about the long history that lies behind this year's turbulent presidential election with my guest Gary Gerstel, author of Liberty and Coercion, a panoramic new book about some of the contradictions that have bedeviled American politics from the very beginning. He tells me just what it means to have a plausible socialist candidate running for the presidency. It still remains a stunning development in American politics that someone who describes himself as a socialist has gotten this far and has electrified so many people who hadn't either thought about socialism at all or if they had thought about socialism, they thought it, it was a bad word. Stay with us to hear about that and a whole lot more. First, though, to Uganda. In the previous series of this podcast, we spent a lot of time talking about the British general election, and we found that we had a listenership from around the world. And I often wondered what people in Asia or Africa made of our parochial obsession with British politics. But every election matters, and we want to return the compliment by looking at elections in other parts of the world and trying to explain what they mean. This week's presidential election in Uganda sees one of Africa's longest-running political leaders, Yoweri Museveni, who first came to power in 1986, running for another five years in office. Most commentators expect him to win. But this time he faces a different kind of opposition. I asked my colleague Adam Branch, who studies Ugandan politics and who lived in the country for a number of years when he taught at Makere University in Kampala, to explain... What makes this election somewhat distinct from the previous elections that we've had in Uganda over the last 30 years is that for the first time, there's two viable opposition candidates running against the president. For the last three elections, there have been two candidates, the president, Yoweri Museveni, who's been in power now for 30 years, and on the other hand, Kisa Besije, who was, in fact, Museveni's doctor during the civil war in the early 80s and was a very important member of the regime in the 1990s. So Besije broke with Museveni and the National Resistance Movement, Museveni's party, at the end of the 90s. And in 2000, 2006, 2011, and then now, has stood as the main opposition candidate to Museveni. Besije is a very popular figure, especially in urban areas. He has a, the capacity to really mobilize crowds in a really significant way, to bring people out in the streets in huge numbers. This year is the first year that we have a second opposition candidate, who is Amama Mbabazi. Mbabazi, like Besije, also was a very important central figure in the regime. Whereas Besije broke with the regime at the end of the 90s, Mbabazi broke with the regime about a year ago. And since then has launched a presidential campaign. For a number of years, Mbabazi was sort of Museveni's hatchet man. He was the attorney general, he was prime minister, he was secretary general of the national resistance movement. And he was in fact sort of responsible for orchestrating a lot of the kinds of repression and control that the government has exercised over the country. And so 
for the last year during which Mbabazi has sort of launched his own campaign, there's been a lot of questions as to whether or not it's genuine, whether he is a genuine opposition candidate or whether he's sort of a Trojan horse for Museveni. So seen from the outside, normally in electoral terms, a divided opposition would make it more likely that the incumbent would win. And what you're describing, it sounds a little like that. I mean, the incumbent was pretty secure in the previous three elections with just one opposition candidate. From your perspective, does this is this a sign of weakness on the part of the regime that now two viable candidates have broken away? Or does it just make it more likely that we're going to see a return of the sitting president? I think it does signal a weakness on the part of the regime in the sense that Mbabazi for many years was seen as the most likely successor to Museveni. And then when he started to make signals that he was expecting this transition to happen quickly, that's when Museveni sidelined him and then basically kicked him out of the party. So the fact that the person who most observers thought was going to be the successor to Museveni has broken with the regime because even he no longer saw a path for political opposition or for political change from within the regime. That, in my view, signals significant weakness on the part of the regime. Now, in terms of the upcoming election, in Uganda, you have to win 50% to avoid a runoff. So the question is, well, with two opposition candidates, will they be able to garner enough support each so as to push it to a second round, where then presumably they would join forces and have a viable chance at defeating um, Museveni? According to most polls that we've seen, Museveni is still well over 50%. I mean, how reliable are these polls? Do people take the polling seriously in an election like this? In previous elections, the independent polls often reflected election outcomes to some to a substantial extent. So my feeling is that, yeah, is that obviously there's a lot of questions around the poll and the government newspaper runs a poll and says Museveni is going to win 75 percent. And then an independent group runs a poll and says he's going to win 55 percent. I think 55 percent seems like but, a pretty... But nobody is saying he's going to lose. Nobody's saying he's going to lose at this point. Those who are sort of hoping for Museveni to lose in the election, I think what they were hoping for is that between Besige and Mbabazi, Besige would capture the sort of more radical, anti-NRM, anti-Museveni vote, whereas Mbabazi would be something more of a centrist candidate. He would capture people who wanted to keep the political party, the NRM, in power, but just felt that it was time for Museveni to go. So it was sort of hoped that you'd be able to get enough people together to be able to get over the, the 50% and go to a, to a runoff. I'm but not sure y- you're looking skeptical. Yeah, I, I don't see that as happening. I, th- I think the problem is that Bessie J's support has remained pretty much constant, somewhere between about 25 and 35%. So the real question was, is Mbabazi going to be able to get maybe 20%, 25%, and thus push it to a runoff? And while he started out strong, I think that very quickly he realized how difficult it is to run a campaign without sufficient resources. So all of a sudden, by leaving the NRM, he had all of his access to resources was cut off. And suddenly he found himself having to take out loans and having to make promises that people weren't sure that he was going to be able to keep. So while Mbabazi started out very strong, his support and his numbers have really waned over the last couple months. And this is also because the, 
the questions over whether he was a legitimate candidate or not remained. So people have been waiting to see some sign that he truly has broken from Museveni and he's not just a Trojan horse, that it's not part of some government ploy to send him out there. And people still are just are not sure. And so the catch is if he'd given the sign that he'd really broken, the sign is he doesn't have the resources. If he has the resources, it's a sign he hasn't broken from the regime. Exactly. That's so, the catch-22, exactly. not just of Ugandan politics. Exactly. We'll come back to Adam in a second to hear more about the campaign and how it's unfolded and also what he thinks might happen after the election. But we also wanted to speak to some people in Uganda about their hopes or their fears for this vote. Halema Athumani went to visit some women writers at a writers' organisation in Kampala, the capital, and she asked them what they hoped for or feared from this election. I can't predict the outcome, but it would bring, at least we would be confident that the person you voted for is the person who is the rightful winner. Uh, we don't want to go to war. Will the change be peaceful? Will the transition be peaceful? The, the, that is um, the main question in my mind, but um, effectiveness and accountability of the, the leader to the people. I have children and I'm very worried for my children because if the current regime comes back, there will be trouble. If the current regime doesn't come back, there will be trouble. So either way, we are like caught in between. There's so much anxiety amongst people. Oh, we want these politicians to create development. I think that's the need in, in this society because people want BCJ because they need change. Museven has just been dominating the power since he, he took over. We won't mind who comes as long as they care about what people want, especially the democracy. <laughs> Babazi is also a candidate. Don't you see him anywhere? He's the former prime minister. But you know people think he's conniving with Museveni or something like that. So that's the problem. He's not going to bring change. It's going to be the same administration. Mbabasi, no. He's, uh, I, I can't even put a little bit of trust in, Bamba, in Babazi. Unfortunately, I, I, don't, I don't think he's really looking out for Ugandans. For me, Mbabazi is... His problem is taking power, and for me, that is not hope. You actually sound so hopeless. Doesn't this election give you any ounce of hope at all? No, as I can say that again, it doesn't. There is no difference, because Museven has said it, he has made these statements publicly, I will not give power over to opposition. He has said that, and from all what we are seeing going on in the country, it shows he is ready to hold on to power. It doesn't matter what happens. For you as a person, what kind of change do you want to see? Uh, the change I would like to see, corruption should be down, opportunities should come up, development should be seen at, in all what sectors of life. But um, if I look at the race right now, it is as if we will have the same thing regardless of who comes into office. For me, I would like to go to hospital and find medication there. I would like to, go to take my child to school and know that my child is getting uh, quality education. I would like to walk on the roads and see that the roads are being worked on, that even while the contractors are still working to finish the road, 
they are already filling up potholes on the same road. Adam, in the last few days, there's been some violence around the campaign. Um, Bessie Jay's rallies in particular have attracted a lot of police attention. And he himself, I think, was arrested for a few hours, which provoked more unrest. How dangerous is it? And how dangerous has it got relative to previous campaigns? This campaign, I think there's sort of two big stories. One big story is the fact that now there are two viable opposition candidates and not just one. But the other story actually comes out of the last election, the election 2011. After that election, there was a massive urban uprising, often called the walk to work protests, that led to a number of deaths, led to huge numbers of arrests. And basically, the capital Kampala became subject to a kind of military police occupation ever since. So that's been the kind of other underlying current of this campaign is the question of whether there's going to be a repeat of the violence and a lot of real fear over the possibility for violence. On Monday of this week was the first time that there was really significant violence that broke out in the capital in Kampala. That has really awakened a lot of latent fears that people had about the possibility of violence surrounding the election all of a sudden have come to a head. Even in the last couple of days leading up to the election, we've seen hundreds, if not thousands of people fleeing the capital. A lot of concern, too, because the government has been organizing what some have called citizens' militias uh, under the name of crime preventers whom it says are there to help make sure that the vote goes okay, but most people see them as, in fact, sort of enforcing arm of the government, there to intimidate opposition and to intimidate opposition voters. Bessie J, too, has been organizing his own sort of youth groups, and so there's a lot of fear, too, that they might instigate violence after the elections. And Bessie J has said that he is not going to go to court again if there's a rigged election. In 2001 and in 2006, he went to the Supreme Court after the election, and the Supreme Court ruled that there had been significant irregularities and the elections had not been free and fair, but not enough to affect the outcome. So he has said that instead of going to the courts, he's now going to turn to people power as the way to deal with election rigging. So from your perspective... After the result, from everything you've said, it sounds very, very unlikely that there will be a surprise here. How dangerous might the situation get following the election? We'll we'll come back and revisit this in a week, and we may come back and revisit it further on. But as someone who lived there and knows the country well, um, is this election a dangerous time for Uganda? I think it's a very tense time, but my feeling is that people are very wary of violence. I think that there will probably be protests afterwards. There will probably be some police crackdown. The protests that happened after the last election, 2011, the walk to work protests, President Museveni basically let it be known that he would do whatever it takes to shut down these protests and to hold on to power. So I think that he basically sent a message. If they want to protest, this is the price they're going to have to pay. And I think most Ugandans are not willing to pay that price, especially for a opposition candidate who is as polarizing and as sort of um, unknown as as Bessie J. Insofar as the British newspapers are covering this election at all, it fits into a wider narrative 
which is that Museveni is one of the longest serving African leaders, but it forms a pattern of African leaders. And in his case, he changed the constitution, I think about a decade ago to allow him to run again. A series of African leaders who are changing the constitutions or doing what it takes to remain in power. And it forms part of a wider narrative about the current state of democracy on the continent and it not being in a particularly healthy state. Now, you study Africa more widely. Is is that wrong? I mean, are we seeing this in too cliche terms to see this as a sign, just the longevity of this man's time in office and the fact this election looks like a foregone conclusion of a sign that democracy in large parts of the continent is still in a very, very fragile state? It's easy to focus on some of the longest running African leaders. But I think what it signals is a deeper sort of crisis of electoral democracy on the continent. And this is largely because policy decisions, both political and economic, have systematically been removed from the hands of African governments, especially over the last 25 years since the era of structural adjustment and uh, neoliberal interventions by the World Bank and by donors. So basically, I think that what we have in Africa at this point are what Tandika Makandawiri has called choiceless democracies, where yes, you might be able to vote in another candidate, but the policy options available to the new, new leader are going to be exactly the same as the old leader. And so as I see it, the fact that Museveni has been in power all this time, actually, to focus upon that too much, hides the fact that whoever is in power is going to be faced with the same very limited set of policy options because of the international context that African governments find themselves in. I mean, yes, there have been a number of, of leaders who have, in the last few years, changed constitutions and have found ways to have themselves voted back into power, what people have called electoral authoritarianism. Yes, that's certainly a trend. But I think the deeper underlying factor that we need to look at is the way that electoral democracy simply is not able to respond to the deeper demands of African peoples, both urban and rural. So that's one thing. Another thing I think it's also important to keep in mind is that President Museveni and many of these other African leaders who have been in power for decades are in power to some degree thanks to support from the West. Western powers have found it very convenient to keep people like Museveni in power for as long as possible. So Museveni is basically a sort of regional security broker. He's a proxy for the U.S. in their war on terror. He's willing to send troops to South Sudan, to Somalia, Central African Republic, And he's also been sort of a champion of neoliberal structural adjustments. So for the bank and the Washington consensus, they see him as really indispensable. We're going to talk about the US presidential elections in a second. One last question for this week. So it doesn't sound like we're just separating out Africa as having a special set of problems. Some of what you describe applies to electoral democracy in the West as well. The feeling that the choices aren't real, the frustrations of ordinary voters, that it doesn't matter who you vote for, the government always gets in and so on. Is it wrong to draw analogies there? I mean, is some of the mood of discontent that's roiling American democracy analogous to some of the feelings that people have in Uganda? Absolutely. And I think that, in fact, that we can see the present of Western electoral politics in some ways in the past of Africa's electoral politics. So choiceless democracies have been in existence in Africa really since the era of neoliberal structural adjustment of austerity. And so in my view, the kind of disappointment and disillusionment with electoral democracy that we see in other parts of the world 
This has been the status quo for many African countries for over a quarter of a century. Typically, one sees Africa as sort of behind the West in terms of historical narratives. But in this sense, perhaps Africa is ahead of the West. So if the West wants to see its political future, perhaps it should look to Africa's present. Thank you to Adam Branch. We'll be hearing from Adam again next week when we review the results of the election and try to explain what they mean. You're listening to Election, the Cambridge Politics Podcast. As we've just been hearing, Uganda isn't the only place where an electorate is getting fed up with the choices that it's been offered. Gary Gerstel is the Mellon Professor of American History at Cambridge, and his new book, Liberty and Coercion, offers some deep insights into the long roots of the current discontents in American electoral politics. I started by asking him to explain, where does American anti-government sentiment come from? Well, Americans like to think of themselves, their freedom in terms of freedom from government. And this goes back to the founding moment of the country in the 18th century and the fight for independence against George III and freedom from Britain. And at the same time, Americans don't hesitate to legislate the hell out of everything. Sexuality, marriage, race, whether you can shop on the Sabbath. At the same time that Americans go around thinking that their freedom is freedom from government, they are also enacting all kinds of laws to restrict people's liberties in the interests of some greater common good. And in searching for the origins of this, I come back to the two different theories of governance which are inscribed in the Constitution from the moment of the country's founding. And that renders it constitutional, foundational, and very, very hard to overcome. One theory is the liberal theory in the classical sense that one's freedom is freedom from government. The other theory is an obscure uh, doctrine called the police power, which is derived from 18th century notions of the public police in Great Britain. This is police not in our 21st century notion of simply protecting life and property and going after criminals. Uh, This is an 18th century notion of police, which means the duty and obligation of the sovereign to look after the good and welfare of the commonwealth. And somehow this doctrine, this pre-revolutionary doctrine, gets inscribed into the legislatures and the constitutions of state governments. And this authorizes the state governments uh, with enormous power over a vast terrain. And the understanding of this is that this is the duty to care for the good and welfare of the commonwealth. What does that mean? Well, whatever the good and welfare of the commonwealth requires, the state legislature is, is authorized to act upon. We know something about this in terms of states' rights. Uh, That's a common refrain in American history. But most Americans don't really understand what states' rights involve. And one of the big surprises for me in writing this book is that this police power, which to the extent to which it's study, is thought to have been upended in the Civil War uh, by several constitutional amendments, is rehabilitated by the Supreme Court and given another century of life. So if we want to date the demise of the police power, it's not the 1860s. It's the 1960s. So we'll come on in a second to how it might be playing out in the current round of presidential elections and other controversies in American life. But just to go back to that idea of the police power, because I think most people, if they hear about police power in the United States, will think about sort of the armed, militarized police on the streets, Black Lives Matter, the kind of confrontation between police power and ordinary civilians over questions of security and property and so on. But what you're describing is more like policing people's morals. I mean, it's it's something closer to a European idea that the job of government, the thing, as you said, that we think that 
Americans wanted to escape from, which is that the job of government is to create good citizens. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that this happens at the state level. And just to be clear to our listeners, the state level, this is not the federal government. This is at the level of individual states. Did they all do it? I mean, is this something that, that sort of then divides up geographically? Or is there a sense that for most of American history, within your individual state, it was the job of your state government to tell you how to live? Every state, California, New York, Alabama, Mississippi, every state has the right and obligation to tell you how, how, to, live. how to live and how to, how to make you into a, a good citizen and how to give you uh, what you need in order to get on with the business of, of life and properly cultivated, properly democratic. Now, states uh, differed uh, on this. They did have the option of inscribing into their own state constitutions a version of the Federal Bill of Rights, but they were not obligated to. Some did, some didn't. And also state constitutions, unlike the federal constitutions, were relatively easy to change. It was not that big a deal to call a constitutional convention. So some states pioneered in what we might call welfare legislation, looking toward economic matters. Other states concentrated entirely on moral issues, obscenity, sex, sex, marriage, marriage, prostitution, the whole business. All of this fell within the police power. Now, some Americans would argue that what the states really set up is a pluralism of police regimes. Uh, You don't like life in one state, you go to another. You can't drink in New Hampshire, you go to Massachusetts. You can't get divorced in Alabama, you go to Nevada. And we saw this a recent incarnation of this in terms of um, rights to gay marriage, which were in some states and not in other states. So the rejoinder to the effectiveness of this police power was to say, well, Americans could still pretty much do what they wanted. And one could even argue that the rates of geographic mobility for which Americans are allegedly famous may have been fueled by this. And yet it's equally true that Americans are profoundly attached to place. It matters to a lot of Americans, whether you're a northerner, a southerner, a westerner. And uh, many did not feel comfortable simply picking up and leaving to go somewhere else where they might encounter a more liberal regime, or in some instances, a more conservative regime, um, more to their liking. And then, as you said, in the 20th century, the story shifts. What we think of as now resistance to government and to big government is almost entirely concentrated at the federal level, because the power of the federal government has grown enormously through the 20th century, particularly through war and as a result of war. So so what? just tell us a little bit about how you see the arc of this story through the 20th century. I mean, states haven't given up these powers, but the federal government has assumed new kinds of powers and new kinds of responsibilities, which is essentially what's driving some of the dynamic of American politics today. You said the 1960s was the shift. Just tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, well, two issues come to the fore in the 1960s. One is the issue of race and the the civil rights revolution. Under the police power doctrine, uh, various state governments were empowered to enforce all kinds of discriminatory legislation on African Americans and the ways in which they lived, in ways that one would think directly contravened the 14th Amendment. But the courts construed the 14th Amendment so narrowly for so many years that the states could still do pretty much what they wanted until the civil rights movement arose in a world being shaken by the after effects of World War II, a general global revolt against the principles of white supremacy manifesting itself in Europe as a revolt against empire. And in the midst of this rising tide of color 
And in the midst of the Cold War, where the, the U.S. was fighting the Soviet Union and the Soviet Union was saying to the colored peoples of Asia and Africa, you want to go to the free world? Have you seen lately the kind of rights or lack of rights that people of color have in the United States? In that world, the police power became unacceptable. The treatment of blacks became unacceptable. There were risings and insurrections in the streets. Uh, and in these pressure-packed circumstances, the Supreme Court undertakes to incorporate the state governments under the Bill of Rights, which means they no longer have the freedom to police as they wished. Whatever policing they wish to do has to be done within the constraints of the Federal Bill of Rights, and those offer powerful protections. The federal government, through the Supreme Court, imposes this new regime on the states and strips them of much of their police powers. It's all done within the space of 10 or 15 years. It's a near revolutionary moment in American society. The other dimension of the 1960s has to do, well, what replaces the police power? And the federal government never gets its own federal police power. It has immense, by the 1960s, military power, but this gives a power to defend the United States against foreign attackers and internal subversives. It does not have the power to, to care for the good and welfare of the Commonwealth. It does not have a broad power to educate and prepare good citizens for the lives they are being expected to lead. And so the federal government's power is growing nevertheless, but the question is, what is the constitutional justification for this power? What should have happened in the 1960s and 70s is a constitutional amendment changing the Constitution so as to transfer part of the police power that in, had adhered in the state governments to the federal government. But because changing the Constitution through an amendment is impossible, the federal government has to use powers already given to it in the Constitution to take on tasks that it's not so clearly authorized to do. It must improvise, it must be creative. But at a certain point, questions arise as to whether what the federal government is doing in civil rights, in taking care of the environment and protecting the climate, health care. The question is, what is its authority? And the conservative charge becomes the federal government does not really have the authority to do this. And they have a point. They have a strong constitutional claim. And this increasingly becomes a popular position and undergirds the conservative movement so that the federal government is constantly under attack and any new piece of legislation that is passed has to run a gauntlet of debilitating challenges that can sometimes stretch over years. And the net result is to make something of a paper giant. And this leads to a debilitating situation and even a state of paralysis, which is one way of describing American politics the last 20 years. There is already a lot of commentary saying that American politics has reached an impasse because the nomination of a new Supreme Court justice just isn't going to find its way through this system. The partisanship of the last 20 years has become extraordinary in the last few years to a heightened level, even that people maybe wouldn't have imagined during the Clinton era. Do you trace this partisanship back to that revolution that you described? Because you said it happened quite quickly. And in some sense, it was piecemeal. It wasn't really thought through. It was by necessity. You take the powers away from one place and someone else has to pick up the slack, but the constitutional authority is not there. Is this the long tail of that revolution that hasn't fully played itself out? Or has something else happened more recently that's given it new legs or given us partisanship on steroids, which is what we seem to have now? This is absolutely the tale of that moment. And the justice who just died st stands at the very center of it. His contribution to jurisprudence 
was the doctrine of originalism, and it was an attack uh, levied on the liberal justices of the 1960s who were improvising, being creative, and using the Constitution and interpreting it in different ways. And along came Scalia and others and said, you are doing things with the Constitution that cannot be found in the Constitution. It's illegitimate, and I am going to propose and argue for a different interpretation of the Constitution, which came to be called originalism. And its core is that if a power was granted by the Constitution to the federal government, you have to find it in the Constitution, or you have to find it in the text surrounding debates about the Constitution in the 18th century. If it's not there, and an example of that would be privacy and rights of women to contraception, if it's not there, it cannot be read into the Constitution. This is, this is the biggest issue in American history from the 1980s forward, and Scalia stands at the very center of it, and his death and his possible loss of a conservative majority on the court, which is the consequence of that, brings the issue that Americans have been fighting about most fiercely for the last 40 years right to the front of American politics, and this is going to be a struggle to the death. And it cuts across a presidential campaign, which just adds both to the drama, but also makes it so much harder to see a way through. The current presidential election seems distinctive, perhaps unique in recent American history, but it doesn't play out in any conventional way along some of the lines you described. It's not as though Trump is anti-government and Sanders is pro-government. Sanders is probably pro-federal government, but Trump is a complicated figure with Mm -hmm. a very ambivalent history in relation to what he thinks the job of government is to do. So how did those two stories interact? There's the jurisprudential story, but then there's the straightforward electoral populist political story about who has appealed to the American people at the moment. So how do you see the Trump-Sanders dynamic in relation to the, the story, the tension you've just described? Part of it is connected in this way, and part of it is, is unconnected. The part that is connected is Americans reacting to paralysis of government, the perception that government is not working, and, and part of this paralysis is due to the battle over the legitimacy of the federal government, which has been going on now for 50 years and still remains deeply unresolved. The other matter that's come into play here is globalization and its effects and the sense that many Americans have that their society is declining, that the opportunity for the average working man and woman is smaller today than it was 20 or 25 years ago. And this understanding and this reckoning with American society, its future, its opportunity, its lack of opportunity for people has has sunk in. And both Trump and Sanders are addressing that issue in in radically different ways, but they both attack the existing political system for not working. And they also are reckoning with the crisis of globalization, which is not just American, but global. The UK, the rest of Europe is struggling with this as, as much as the United States is. And they have put issues of inequality and opportunity to the fore that has a lot to do with their popularity. That combined with the sense that whatever government the United States has had has descended into paralysis. And we need voices outside of the established center, either to the right, as in Trump, or to the left, as in Sanders, to come in and shake things up. But that sense of shaking things up does not have a clear way forward jurisprudentially or constitutionally. And some of the confusion and danger of the moment is that eventually the U.S. is going to have to find a journey to a better constitutional and jurisprudential place. But the American election, with all the energies unleashed, is not the best place to sort out what is a very complicated process. 
if we take some of the historical comparisons here, this isn't the first wave of globalization. And globalization, go back to the end of the 19th century, produced its populist reactions and counter-reactions, a sense that ordinary Americans were being left behind. They had been let down in some sense by the system that was meant to look after them. Is the difference now that then, because the federal government had not been empowered, the story that you tell was still absolutely in its heyday, that the, the states were the ones responsible for the citizens. And the federal government was really just an overarching shell in many respects in terms of welfare and so on. So there was an opportunity for politicians to come along and offer to empower or to begin to empower the federal government. But now we've got that additional dynamic that it's the federal government that bears the brunt of the rage and the discontent. And so it's not completely clear what these new po politicians are offering. I mean, wh where are they going to locate power? They're not offering to go back to the states, I don't think. Is Trump offering to go back to the States? I don't think he is. Trump is not offering to go back to the States. So in a sense, part of the challenge here on both sides, who and where is this protection for ordinary Americans going to come from? It's a bit like, in some respects, the arguments in Britain at the moment about the European Union. Mm -hmm. When the European Union is on a scale that people's revulsion from elites means they're pushing back against it. But some of the protection that they want actually needs to be scaled up in a globalized world if it's going to be effective. And that's part of the dilemma here. Yes, that's very much the dilemma in the United States. Uh, the individual states, California, New York, and the southern states also are becoming more active and imagining themselves as laboratories of democracy. And there are important initiatives going on there. And there are many politicians just frustrated with the paralysis at the federal level who think they can be more effective at, at the state level because the same kind of paralysis is not there. And also, they still have a broader charter of powers than what inheres in the federal government. But clearly, there is the need for something else. Uh, states can serve as, as modeling, but they can't substitute for national policy. And uh, you're absolutely right. In the last moment of globalization, the nation state was the effective vehicle for dealing with questions of inequality, injustice, and there is no similar vehicle or no institution that can serve the purpose that the federal government or the national government or the nation state, and this is true of Europe as much of the United States, once served 100 years ago. The social welfare states were built through the nation state, and it's not clear whether the nation state can still be effective in that regard. Globalization this time has pointed to the need for institutions that are greater than single nations. But the crisis of the EU illustrates the problem with coming up with uh, a set of institutions that work. And the EU is caught in a deep democratic deficit that people feel intensely. They want to experience democracy. They want to experience sovereignty. And they don't see the possibility of that within the EU. There are similar feelings in the United States. The hopeful part of this moment is that democratic energies have been renewed and they have been unleashed. And there's an element of unpredictability about that. And the solution is going to have to come out of the creativity of the movements and the moment. So there is a sense of hope. I tend to look for hope more in the, in the troops on Sanders' side than in Trump's side. But I think in both cases, there's an excitement about the possibility of politics and in that excitement is something important because it does connote a, a form of democratic renewal. And from that, perhaps will come a series of democratic innovations that will invent the institutions that can address the very serious problems that the United States and Europe and other countries face. So if we can wind this up with a bit more of a discussion about Sanders, because it is a fascinating phenomenon. As you've just described it, the internationalist side of 
this kind of response to globalization is not going to win anyone the presidency. I don't think we're at a point yet where anyone's going to be a plausible candidate. And Sanders certainly isn't that candidate. He's a very domestic, mm-hmm. American-oriented politician. He's, he calls himself a socialist, but he does not call himself an internationalist. I don't yes, think. and he has no foreign policy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's 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 omission rather than commission, but it's silence, basically. Yes. He's been around for a long time. While you've been studying the history of the American Republic, people like Sanders have always been there. Well, they've certainly been there in the period since the 1960s, which is, and he has his origins as a politician at the dawn of the story that you described in the civil rights movement. When you see him now, does he strike you as something new? Or do you hear a voice and see a political persona that you recognize throughout the period you've been studying modern American politics that somehow has captured something now? Or is he actually evolved into something new in this moment? I don't so much hear the 60s, but I do hear uh, echoes of Eugene Victor Debs, who was the great socialist in American history, who ran for the presidency in 1912 and got 6% of the votes. And that was in that previous wave of globalization that, that was, we talked about. That was in that previous wave of globalization. And, and more significantly than his vote total is that he decisively shaped the election by putting certain issues in front of the American people. And the issue he put in front of the American people is quite similar to the issue that uh, Sanders has put in front of the American people, which is what are we going to do with concentrated corporate and financial power? That was the key issue of the 1912 election. And that has now become a key issue in the 2016 election. I hear Sanders' ability to connect socialism as it must be connected in America to a some version of the American dream. His signature song is America from Simon and Garfunkel. He's much more dreamy about America than Hillary Clinton is. And crucial to socialism having any chance for success in America is connecting it to some American story of freedom, liberty, and justice. And so the person who I connect him to is the great socialist in America, Debs himself. Having having said that, I long ago came to the conclusion, having studied the left in American politics for the better part of 15 years, that a socialist could never be elected president of the United States, nor would a self-avowed socialist ever be nominated by one of the principal parties. And so I think it's going to be a still a hard road for Sanders, and I don't think it's likely that he will win the nomination, and I don't think he's going to win the election. It still remains a stunning development in American politics that someone who describes himself as, as a socialist has gotten this far and has electrified so many people who hadn't either thought about socialism at all, or if they had thought about socialism, they thought it, it was a bad word. For Sanders to do what he's doing means that we, we meaning the world, has really moved out of the communist era. And I would say that's, that's a benefit, because if the socialist appeal is ever to recover anything from what it once had, it had to recover from the tyranny and the totalitarianism of the botched Soviet communist experiment. And it may be that that has freed a certain kind of left for new imaginings about the possibilities of socialism. And Sanders' socialism is very different than the Debsian socialism, concretely, in terms of what he's calling for. And that's appropriate for a 21st century that's very different from the 20th century. But there is a hopefulness, and it's an exciting moment to see Americans grappling seriously with fundamental issues. And those issues are very much a part of this campaign. Thank you to Gary Gerstel. I'm joined now by our regular panel, Helen Thompson, Finbar Livesey, and Chris Brooke. So Chris, when you look at a candidate like Sanders, do you see what you recognize as a socialist? 
know. The language of socialism has obviously become quite vague, but the main commitments you associate with uh, socialism are a desire to control the means of production, whether that's through worker ownership or wholesale nationalisation, planning the economy, and so on. Uh, there's very little of this in Sanders' campaign. By contrast, when I look at Sanders, I see something like a New Deal Democrat. Between the early 1930s and the 1970s, the political system in America was geared around lowering the enormous kinds of inequalities that were rampant in, above all, the 1920s. Uh, the share of national income that the richest 10% of the uh, population took home was squeezed and squeezed and squeezed. And in the 1970s, that all went into a reverse. This is the advent of what's increasingly these days called neoliberalism. And in the Democratic Party, first Jimmy Carter, and then Bill Clinton, and then following him, Barack Obama, made their peace with the new order associated with Reagan. And we've seen levels of income inequality continuing to rise. And it looks to me as if Sanders is standing up for a vision associated with the older Democratic Party, the party of Franklin Roosevelt, uh, John F. Kennedy, Lyndon Johnson, um, that hasn't had much of a voice in the Democratic Party over the last 30 or 40 years. So... To my eyes, he looks like somebody who's trying to turn the clock back, not to socialism, uh, but to what the mainstream of American politics was in the middle four decades or so of the 20th century. Because Gary Gerstle says that the politician that Sanders reminds him of is Eugene Debs, who was the socialist candidate um, during that period that you described, the period of rampant inequality. So that's not the association that comes to mind for you. I mean, American socialism is different from European socialism anyway, but... It does have associations through Debs with the European tradition. You don't see that link. I'm, I'm sure there is a link between uh, Sanders and the older American socialist tradition, and clearly Debs is the single most important figure in that tradition. And I think it can help Sanders to attach himself to a prominent presidential candidate running outside the uh, embrace of the mainstream parties. Because, of course, the political dynamic is very different. In the period I'm talking about, these middle decades of the 20th century, it was the Democratic Party that was uh, the main institution for driving through change. Sanders doesn't have the Democratic Party. He's not even a Democrat. I mean, that's how marginalised this kind of politics has become in the United States. So I can see why both in terms of presenting himself to his followers and in terms of a certain kind of campaign rhetoric and in terms of a historical forebear, he might like to celebrate the tradition of Debs. But in terms of what he's offering, it doesn't look especially socialist to me, no. Helen, the other thing that Sanders describes himself as, well, he says he wants a revolution. I'm not sure he calls himself a revolutionary. To my mind, a revolution usually involves an overturning not just of structures of inequality and inventing a new kind of welfare state. It means overturning the governing order. And that often means a radical restructuring of the Constitution. Everyone who looks at Sanders' programme wonders how he would get it through Congress and how he would actually govern on that basis. But he's not talking about, therefore, changing the way that America is governed by redrafting aspects of the Constitution or altering the way in which power is organised through the various branches of government. So is he not a revolutionary then? 
I think he is a revolutionary in the sense that he wants to attack, in some sense, the real way in which power is exercised in the United States. That is at its centre through the influence of money on America's democratic politics. And if he were to succeed to get to the presidency, that in itself would be a revolutionary act, I think, given his attitude towards the donor class. Where he's not a revolutionary is any sense of overturning the Constitution. And indeed, to go back to Chris's argument, you could say that in some respects, what Roosevelt wanted to do in the 1930s was more radical and had far-reaching constitutional implications than what Sanders is trying to do now, which essentially, at its heart, is to spend a a trillion dollars worth more money. And just to clarify, what Roosevelt wanted to do was, among other things, change the role of the Supreme Court. Indeed, and Roosevelt got himself into a confrontation with the Supreme Court. Indeed, he tried to pack the court with Roosevelt-friendly justices because the court was declaring unconstitutional various of the measures that Congress had passed that Roosevelt had initiated. It's difficult to see that kind of confrontation happening with a Sanders presidency if he got there. But I do think that what it highlights is distinction between the fact he is in one sense a revolutionary politician and the fact it's not about the Constitution is, is that the Constitution has become divorced in some important ways from the way in which power is actually exercised in America. Finbar it is the case, though, that the Supreme Court is now becoming a central issue in this presidential campaign because this week of the death of Justice Scalia. And the question that's now arisen about who's going to be in a position to nominate a replacement. Can a sitting lame duck president do it in his final year? Do we have to wait for the judgment of the American people, their choice of a president, and by implication, therefore, their sanction for a new nominee? And Sanders has said that his test for any nominee were he president would be a willingness to overturn Citizen United, the judgment that seemed to open the floodgates to new waves of billionaire money into American politics. How do you see this playing out? It's a huge question and people are sort of feeling their way in the dark here. But can the question of Supreme Court nominations cut across a presidential campaign in a way that it makes sense for people to vote for a president and potentially for a nominee to the Supreme Court as well? It's a hugely important issue in terms of how we will see everything play out post the election itself. But I find it very strange that what you're seeing is this moment where the Republican candidates want an a la carte constitution to say that the president shouldn't have the powers that the constitution actually gives him. There is precedent. There have been justices nominated in the final year of a sitting president before. And the idea that Obama shouldn't exercise his prerogative to nominate and put a justice forward to the Congress is ridiculous. Now, will it get through the Congress? That's a different question. And what's really interesting is not this period, because he's not a lame duck till post the election, the period at the end of the year, as we're turning into the transition, and whether or not it's a Democratic presidential candidate coming forward or a Republican. Now, just to anchor this back to the questions we were discussing about Saunders and whether or not he's a socialist and what he will or won't do, very surprisingly, the death of Scalia now actually opens the door to the possibility that if Saunders was elected, that he could actually bring forward the changes that he wants to bring forward if the Democrats are brave enough to put forward a justice who would actually tilt the court in that direction. But it's going to be a massive fight. And so the decision really is now across the Democratic Party. Do they want to engage with this fight or do they want to stay with the status quo and stay with Clinton and have something calmer, as it were, in terms of the nomination fight. People often say that we overstate how important presidential elections are. That's not often where the action is. The real changes are happening 
somewhere lower down the American political food chain. But this election looks so extraordinary because so much seems to hang on it now even more than ever. And people who are voting and people who are voting are angry and they're being swayed this way and that are being asked to make a whole range of decisions. It's sort of extraordinary how you can squeeze so much of so much consequence through one choice. It doesn't, Helen, it doesn't really make sense to me how an election that might see Donald Trump elected president of the United States also is meant to resolve a whole range of quite complicated constitutional questions. I entirely agree. And I think that's the most interesting thing about this election is that what started as something a year ago that might have looked really quite dull, which would have been a Bush versus Clinton contest in which very little would have been up for grabs. Actually, suddenly a whole lot of things about American politics from the Supreme Court to foreign policy is now on the table. I think part of that has actually got to do with the Trump phenomenon that cuts across a whole set of issues and just puts things out there in the surface of American politics that are usually not said. And then you've also got the contingency of the death of a Supreme Court justice. I think, though, we can perhaps overemphasise how important that is going to be during the election contest itself, because the Supreme Court is something that is intensely important to intense partisans. It's much less important, I think, across centrist opinion. In some sense, the party establishments, I think, of both parties will be quite happy with having the Supreme Court put back into play because that's the kind of ideological dispute that makes sense to them and they can take their positions. But I'm not actually sure that this election can be contained around the Supreme Court in the way in which they might hope. And Chris, finally, Gary Gerstle ended his discussion with me by saying that what the Sanders candidacy for him represents is genuine hope. This is an opportunity now for Americans to really rethink some of the absolutely fundamental questions of politics, some of the ones that you were talking about. Maybe it's not as radical as it appears on the surface, but it still goes pretty deep. Do you share that view? I mean, do you look at the Sanders candidacy? Trump is different, but you look at the Sanders candidacy, and do you see this as an opportunity, maybe not for resolving some of these complex constitutional questions, but for at least addressing some of the fundamental issues of 21st century politics through an election? Well, maybe, but there are an awful lot of ifs and buts along the way. What sometimes happens in American politics when people run for president in a dramatic way and don't win the nomination or win the nomination and lose is not so much what they managed to achieve in the presidential year itself, but longer-term transformations that they helped to set in motion. And the absolute classic example of that is Barry Goldwater's tilt for the presidency on the Republican nomination in 1964. He was handsomely beaten by the incumbent uh, Lyndon Johnson, but a lot of people think he helped to set the tone for change in Republican strategy that came later uh, under Nixon, but in particular under Reagan, the new populist conservative style that helped to transform American politics. And I think a number of Sanders supporters hope he can do something like that, but in the other direction. But that's quite optimistic if you think that the consequence of a Sanders run right now might be to create the conditions for the possibility of a Trump presidency that would also transform American politics in other ways. Or again, if you think about the problem that Sanders has being so detached from the Democratic Party and its organisations, there's a campaign here to take over the Democratic Party, but it really is beginning from quite a way outside it. Thank you to Helen, Finbar and Chris, to our special guests Adam Branch and Gary Gerstel, to Halima Atumani for her reporting from Kampala, and to our production team of Catherine Carr, Barry Colfer and Lizzie Presser. Next week, we'll be talking about another country whose looming election is provoking some strong emotions, Ireland. 
And I'll be joined by the Irish broadcaster and economist David McWilliams to talk about bailouts and the blame game. Do please join us then and do visit our website at Polis Election Podcast for blogs, extra clips and a whole lot more. My name is David Runciman and this has been the Cambridge Politics Podcast, Election. Election.